following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. The reason why many people approach spirituality often comes from the results of organized religion. We often find in popular institutions teachings that, while resonate with our heart, are lacking something critical something profound and something fulfilling. It might seem unusual that the very thing missing in organized religion is an understanding of sexuality. People often on the news and on television show the results of monastic life such as in the Catholic Church which profoundly ignores how sexuality can be used for a divine purpose. In organized religion they do not know how to utilize the natural expression of the human being because sexuality is a part of life and despite what people think sexuality is also a part of religion in a genuine sense not from an institutional dogma The reason why there are cases of abuse, violence, is because priests do not understand how sexuality should be used and understood and not repressed. People look at sexuality as something filthy, something perverse, or something to gratify the pleasures of a couple. 
There are extremes in our culture. In religion, we are taught to reject sex, which has its problems. Because as you've seen with institutionalization and the rejection of sexuality, that quality of the human being has to be controlled or understood or worked with. And when people try to repress sexuality, it ends up in forms of perversion, such as molestation of children, deviant sexuality, abuse and degeneration. But we have this other extreme in our culture, where in America or all throughout the world, people feel that we should indulge in sex. We should acquire as many sensations as we can, pleasant experiences, relationships. And yet we look at the results in humanity. Divorce, suffering, marital conflicts, pain. So it's very clear that when we look at the society, people and religion do not understand what the role of sexuality is from a spiritual perspective, from a divine perspective. Some people think that sexuality is simply a means to procreate, to create children. And that's a very noble aspiration to be a father or a mother, to have a family. But we do state that that is not the entire gamut of what sexuality is, to procreate the species. That's one part. People don't really understand that sexual expression as the natural birthright of the human being can be something divine, heavenly, sacred. Not from the Christian perspective that we are going to use this act as something to create a child, to create a family. But there's another purpose that has been taught in all the ancient schools of religion, in mysteries that unfortunately have been gutted out, removed. Primarily because people face a difficult problem when addressing this issue of sexuality. Sexuality in itself, the creative energy itself, has marvelous potential. It can empower our most divine attributes. It can ennoble the soul, our most divine qualities. Because the sexual energy is the ability to create. It always acts. It always has to move, to flow, to work. But the question is, how? In what way do we use this energy, which resides in our glands, whether male, female? Unfortunately, because people have not been educated, we think that Sexuality is simply indulging in desire. Pornography, prostitution, adultery. And our society worships 
these qualities and believes that you can indulge in all these actions and think that there are no consequences. But you see the result of what happens to people. The life of prostitutes or adultery. Sexual action is the most profound action a human being can perform. If we push it away, it churns in the subconsciousness and becomes desire that is never satiated and then it becomes a monster. Which is why priests who don't understand how to consciously work with this energy in a divine way, with practices, with exercises, to transform that energy into something creative, into something expressive. That energy ferments, it rots, it becomes putrid. And this is why you see priests committing such horrible crimes against young people. It's really disastrous. So we have to look beyond just the beliefs about what our culture wants us to think. It's better if we analyze and investigate what this energy is. And the purpose of this lecture is to talk about how the creative energy in itself has the potential to develop our spirituality our true nature, which is the soul. You might have listened on previous lectures, we talk a lot about the soul, consciousness, our true nature. Sometimes people think of Buddha nature and Buddhism. It is the pure element of consciousness that can reflect divinity, who is inside, in our hearts, in our very qualities of being, qualities like compassion, Happiness, serenity, faith, understanding, patience, love. These are qualities that we have deep down, but unfortunately, we have mixed it with impurities. Anger, hatred, lust, envy, greed, which religion calls the seven deadly sins. Every tradition has its names for what we call ego, Defects, desires. And all of that, according to real meditative tradition, has to be removed. All those negative qualities have to be eliminated. But first we have to comprehend them. Understand how our own anger makes us suffer and makes other people suffer. How our own pride injures our neighbor and ourselves at the same time. We don't really understand how our own egotism creates problems for ourselves. And because people do not understand how to work with the mind in an effective way, they take the most powerful energy available to them, the sexual energy, and they channel it through anger, through violence, through perversity. This is how you have all the monsters of today that are very abundant. So this is a very serious topic. And we'll talk about how the soul, known as psyche in the Greek myth, can be awakened to her true nature through Eros. Eros is the god of love, Cupid, 
in the Greek myth, which is a symbol, teaches how our own divine spiritual nature, how through divine love, a divine marriage, the force of eros, eroticism, awakens our full potential, which is pure, divine. So different traditions symbolize that work in many ways. But of course, in this lecture, we'll be very explicit about what these traditions are. You may have heard of alchemy in the Middle East or medieval Europe, Middle Ages. They talk a lot about how we must transform lead into gold. But of course, that is symbolic. It teaches something spiritual and even psychological. Our egotism, our defects, are like lead. They weigh us down. But if we learn to work with energy, the creative sexual energy, and learn to direct it with our consciousness, our soul, that energy is going to empower us radically. And with that force, we can transmute, transform, elevate, make our egotistical consciousness become a divine consciousness, led into gold. In this image, we have Padmasambhava with his consort, his wife. They're in sexual union. But there are many misunderstandings about what this tradition teaches. It's called Tantric Buddhism. A couple, man and woman, who embody masculine and feminine principles can combine their energies to work in a very transformative way. And these ancient traditions teach us, whether from the East or the West, how a man and a woman, using the energies available to them and the power and ability to procreate, can take that energy that they awaken within sexual union and transform it. Use it to empower and create the soul. As Jesus taught in the gospel, that which is born of flesh is flesh through the common sexual act. But the same sexual act or the sexual act transformed and utilized for the spirit, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So many Christians ignore what this teaching is about. They have no clue because people haven't been educated. The physical sexual act can create a physical child. Anybody knows this. But with certain procedures, if the couple retains the sexual energy in their union and use that energy with the soul, can transform their marriage and make it a sacrament, a holy union. This is the meaning of religion, from the Latin religari, to reunite. This is the highest yoga, from the Sanskrit yug, to reunite. It's also known as tantra, which is where this image comes from. And the medieval alchemists 
whom people denigrate today, knew this secret science. It was never taught publicly because it has tremendous power. The sexual energy can create anything. A child, it perpetuates the species. Sexual drive motivates every aspect of society. Every aspect of life, even chemicals, compounds, molecules, electrons, atoms, are driven by sexual propulsion, energy, attraction, rejection, repulsion, combinations of energies, a form of marriage. That energy is everywhere. And in the human being, that most profound force, that ability to create, is in our sexual glands. And this energy is so powerful that it can develop a human being to their highest potential. And so for many centuries, this knowledge was kept secret because, unfortunately, many people would abuse it. But we're living in a very different age now where this type of knowledge and spirituality, information is given openly. The doors have been opened by divinity for people to understand this kind of knowledge so that people who want to transform themselves and have a method to help them attain that goal can. But of course, the alchemical science was taught in symbols in medieval Europe to prevent persecution, such as with the Inquisition and the Catholic Church, which had completely extirpated the sexual teachings of esoteric Christianity. So alchemy comes from Allah in Arabic, meaning the God, the name of divinity in Islam. And kimia, the Greek word for chemistry, it is the chemistry of God. It is how a couple, man and woman, using their sexualized polarities, can take their energy, combine them, and restraining the sexual energy circulating that force and learning to control their egotistical desires and unite out of love to dominate their subconscious passions. Those individuals, those couples, can unite with God or divinity, whatever name we wish to give to that impersonal energy or force. So, in Greek... The word chemia can also mean to fuse or cast a metal. There are many symbols in the Bible that retain this knowledge. Moses lifting up a brazen serpent on a staff to heal the Israelites wounded by divinity for having disobeyed him. You study alchemy, the science of metals. Bronze is an amalgamation of copper and tin. Copper and alchemical science relates to femininity, woman, love, Venus. Tin relates to Jupiter, masculinity, man. When husband and wife unite their energies, they can awaken the brazen serpent known as Kundalini amongst the Gnostics and the yogis of the East. That serpent can be raised upon a staff, the spinal column, so as to heal our soul from the afflictions of our daily life. Moses represents in the Bible willpower, 
the power and the will to dominate temptation and desire. It doesn't mean to run away from sex, but to approach the sexual act with respect and veneration, with love, to remove passion and desire and connect out of divine love. So this couple, Padmasambhava and his consort, are not united out of lust to fulfill their animal desires. And unfortunately, people look at these kinds of images and only think with animality, with satisfying and having pleasant sensations. Pleasure is natural to the sexual act, but it should not be the only basis for which a couple unites. It should be for the couple to really develop their love, their consciousness, to take that energy in through certain exercises, controlling the breath, even performing sacred sounds like mantras. We learn to circulate the energy, and instead of making it go from in to out to expel it, one makes an energy to go out to in, to circulate it, to control it, to elevate it. This is the mysteries of Jesus being baptized in the River Jordan. The word Jordan in Hebrew means descender. That energy of, that is deposited in our sexual glands is divine. It can create life. It is the power of life. The Jews say, Lahayim, to life. And the Christians call it the Holy Spirit, even if they don't understand what that energy is. So that power of life can create spiritual life. And the couple needs to learn to take that energy, which usually descends down into us, and we expel it through a moment of pleasure or a few seconds of pleasure, which are fleeting. That energy, instead of descending, we can learn to make it reascend. Make the river turn its course, which instead of going out, goes in. It circulates its energy. So you have the actual matter or entity of semen, which is physical, another male or, or men or woman, sexual fluid. Those waters, which are symbolized in the Bible as the waters of Genesis, the waters of generation, we can learn to be baptized with that energy, transform it, the substance, into divine power through very specific procedures. This is very well documented in every religious scripture in the world, but an allegory. Jesus performed his first miracle at a wedding, the marriage of Cana. He turned water into wine. People think it's a literal story of Jesus getting people drunk. And they can believe that. But more profoundly, he's teaching a, a couple who knew this science to transform the water or entity of semen into energy, into the wine or ecstasy of the spirit, circulating it. And that is how you are baptized with water. You turn water into wine. And the mystics of Islam, the Sufis, speak very beautifully about this too. Very abundantly, they talk about love of God. Muhammad was in love with God. And they make it an erotic teaching, which scandalizes many people because people like to separate religion from sex and don't understand that you show true religion by loving your wife if you're a man and as a woman loving your husband. This is the science from Egypt, from Al-Kem. It's a very ancient science. It was studied in all the 
primeval cultures of the world before they degenerated, before people, instead of respecting these types of teachings or laws in themselves, decided to indulge in desire. Because sexuality can be for animal pleasure or lust, or it can be for the soul. Depends. And you have to judge in yourself how that is. This is why we study meditation too. So this is a very deep topic. We're introducing some of the basics. Because to really practice like Padmasambhava, without lust, united sexually with his wife, takes a lot of work. Because of course in the beginning, we are full of animality, desire. But with training, we can ride upon desire like a donkey as Jesus rode upon a donkey into Jerusalem, the heavenly city. Symbols, but not explained for many years. So the Sufis also mentioned that, I believe the poet Rumi, who's the most popular poet in the West today, said that when you look at a cup full of water and you have your own desires, you only see your own face in it. But if you're looking as a result of love of God, you will see God in those waters. He's talking about this. If you're married or husband and wife, male, female, in a relationship that is sexually active, we show our love for divinity in the sexual act. But of course, with training, one has to be educated how to do that. It takes time, but it can be done. Or if one is filled with desire, we look at the sexual act and see just the gratification of pleasure. That's one extreme. So this teaching is known as Tantra in the East. In Sanskrit, it is a word for continuum or unbroken stream. It comes from the Greek, I'm sorry, the Sanskrit Tantram. Literally, loom, warp. Hence, it is a groundwork, a system a doctrine. So what is this continuum? When the sexual energy is retained and transformed, it circulates in our body. We have certain energetic channels in our spine, in our body, that can take that energy and circulate it. And we'll talk about uh, what that particular aspect of our physiology relates to. But the energy has to be controlled, has to be contained. That is the only way for energy to circulate. If the energy is released through the orgasm, there is a short circuit. That continuum is broken. So we're very explicit about how Tantra works, because there are people who think that Tantrism is just about sexually uniting with one's partner, enjoying pleasure, and then reaching the orgasm. There are many people who teach that kind of doctrine, but unfortunately that type of action feeds desire. And in these studies we are working to remove our imperfections, like lust or desire itself. We want to empower the soul. But in order for psyche to awaken, we have to work with eros. Retain that power. Even the 14 Dalai Lama 
explained that in Tantra, the seminal force is never let out. We can contain it, conserve it, and make it circulate through mantras or prayer, through breath work. That is how it becomes an unbroken stream. That is how we perform the loom of God. A loom is where we create or create clothes. When we work with that energy, we create something. If that energy is conserved and worked with for many years internally, we create vehicles of expressing divinity in us. We talk a lot about this in the studies of uh, alchemy as the vehicles of God, the wedding garments of the soul. And so Jesus said, or in the Gospels, it is stated that one cannot attend the marriage of divinity without the wedding garment. So that is the loom. We have to create a type of vehicle in which our soul can act. It's not physical, but it's internal. Vehicles that relate to different aspects of our psyche within different dimensions. And we'll be explaining about what these vehicles are in depth, but I just want to introduce to you that the energy has to create something. It can create a physical child, or it can create the vehicles of the soul, the soul itself, which is like a wedding garment. Isn't there a saying that you are what you wear? Or the apparel oft proclaim the man, states Polonius in the play Hamlet. So we weave the soul through this energy. It is a groundwork, it is a system, it is a doctrine. From the word tan to stretch or extend. And of course, this has a sexual significance as represented by the erection of the male phallus. Tantra refers to that continuum of vital energy that sustains all things. So as I stated, the creative energy is within our sexual glands, but we find it within everything, from down to the atom to the galaxy. It is also the class of knowledge and practices that help us harness that vital energy, which can transform us radically, transform the practitioner. Some people also call this transmutation. You may hear this term a lot within the books of Samael and Vior and within different lectures on this topic. Tantra, alchemy, and transmutation are the same thing. So transmutation is broken down from trans, which is a prefix we find in words like transcend or transfix. It means to take something across, beyond, or through, to change something thoroughly, to move. The word mutate, we find, relates to causing something to change in form or nature. So what is transmutation or sexual transmutation? It means through practice to take the actual entity of the semen retained within our body, our receptacle, and with certain prayers, mantras, exercises of breath, we can take 
that actual matter and transform it into energy. Mutate it. I know we are probably familiar with X-Men. Mutants. People with power. But people don't like to recognize that Jesus, Buddha, Krishna, Moses, and many prophets were mutants. They took that energy of sex and created or recreated themselves spiritually. They became such great beings because they were married. They had that energy available to them and through love, they changed themselves. So all those qualities that we admire in beings like the prophets, Jesus, their selflessness, their compassion, they did that because they were, became mutants. They mutated that matter and became an energy. They carried over that force within themselves, raising it from the sexual glands to the brain and then to the heart. If you're familiar with the shepherd's staff, so popular within biblical allegory, it refers to that image the serpent of Kundalini rising from the Cossacks to the head and then down to the heart. That is how one leads flocks, spiritually speaking, because they have that energy manifest. At least true teachers or true prophets or gurus or whatnot. Therefore, transmutation is the act of changing or the state of being changed into another form. So it's logical that that energy which can create a child can create something inside of us. It has tremendous force. It is power of divinity. Divinity creates through the sexual act, through the sexual energy. But it depends on the quality of our mind. What are we doing with that energy? Are we spending it out or we can more radically take that force, conserve it, transmute it? make it into something more powerful. Because as it is now, it's a, in a very rudimentary state. But that energy can really grant us access to many things. So as I said, Krishna was a great mutant. He changed his spiritual form and he had many powers that are documented in the Bhagavad Gita, which... Of course, there was a master in the Hindu pantheon who actually came many thousands of years ago to represent this principle known as Krishna. He is what is known as the Hindu Christ. And as I said, Christ, divinity, is not a person, but an energy. It is impersonal. It is universal. And that energy is synonymous with sex. The power of life, the power of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of divinity is here. And so Krishna, who uh, is a beautiful symbol of that force, had power to act precisely because the soul or the person was working with that energy very beautifully, very profoundly. So, as I mentioned, divinity is the sexual energy. It is a sacred force. Which is why even in the Quran, the doctrine of the Muslims, some of the sacred names of divinity is Al-Khaliq, the creator. 
an al-wadud, meaning the loving. And that scripture mentions how, did we not create you from a sperm drop? Which, of course, is a very, can be a literal thing. We're created from the sperm and the ovum. But more profoundly, if you know this science of alchemy, Allah kimia, divinity creates in us by taking that very same matter and transforming it, transmuting it. Creating the soul, creating life. And truly it is easy for us if you are but believers. Meaning people who are not fanatic or dogmatic, but who learn to be through the power of love. Believe. That was the original meaning of the term. Now belief is something just to accept a doctrine with an intellect or to feel something is true but don't know. To not know. So there are a lot of parallels in different scriptures but I'd like to quote from the Bhagavad Gita which is a very powerful statement of how Krishna, Christ, is that creative energy. I am the strength of the strong, devoid of kama and raga. I am kama, which is not contrary to dharma. There's a lot of words from the Sanskrit that have a lot of different meanings, depending on the context of the phrase. So the same word, kama, in some contexts can mean sex life, it can mean lust, it can be desire, or just pleasure. And on the contrary, it can be chastity. Chastity is an interesting term. People have been miseducated to think that chastity means abstention from sex. And it's logical that people came up with this definition because when people think of sexuality, that they think of animal gratification. So what does it mean to be chaste? So they thought that it means not to engage in the sexual act with the orgasm. Chastity simply means purity, immaculateness. And it refers to a couple learning to use their energies. They can be sexually connected, but chaste. No confusion there. People get hung up on the idea of immaculate conceptions. Well, was Jesus really born from Mary when she did not have sex with anyone? Obviously, that's a very ludicrous interpretation. Because the only way to create is through the sexual act. But the question is, what is the definition of chastity? Obviously, Jesus was born from his parents... And uh, through an immaculate conception, which means through a union that did not involve orgasm. It's not necessary to expel millions of spermatozoan to create one child, because only one sperm is going to fertilize an egg. It's not necessary. If the couple's working seriously, and is working with divinity, if they want to have a child, and they're praying for divinity to give them a son or a, or a girl. They can concentrate on their divinity and pray and work with the creative energy. And if it is accordance with the law of divinity, they can take one sperm out from the man and it can fertilize the egg. That is an immaculate conception. Obviously, it's very magical, you could say, because the sperm that is utilized in that instance is going to be very superior than one ejaculated out of lust. Obviously, there's a psychological quality embedded in the energy, depending on how we use it. If we're chaste and are pure in our minds and hearts, really loving our spouse and being divine, or loving divinity, that energy becomes superior, elevated, 
through our concentration in prayer. So, I am the strength of the strong, devoid of kama and raga. Devoid of lust, and the word for raga is attachment, grasping, to clutch and to pull, to hold. Pretty sure we can look at our own lives to see how much of our sexual activity was based on attachment. Clinging, holding, grasping. We want those experiences. We chase after them. We change our appearance. We model our behavior so that we can find a partner. We're grasping at sexual pleasure and sensations and being in a relationship and satisfying those desires. That's raga. Love is something very different. Something divine. Which is born in the soul when the time is ripe and the the appropriate partner is met. But raga is sexual attachment. Wanting to indulge in animal pleasure, the sensations of sex. And grasping at those experiences at the expense of our soul. Desire is one thing, but the soul is another. The soul knows how to love, to respect the partner, desirely wants to satisfy itself. That is the distinction between an angel and a demon. An angel has love, eros, towards psyche, but desire only wants to fulfill itself at any cost. So I am the strength of the strong, devoid of lust and attachment. But then he uses something very interesting here. I am kama, which is not contrary to dharma. So many people get confused about this statement. How is it that he says, I am not kama, and yet he says, I am kama? Because the word kama is dual. It's dualistic. It can mean lust. It can mean love. It can mean desire. It can mean chastity. So he is sexual drive that is not contrary to dharma. And dharma means religious principles, law, truth, reality, virtue. So contrary to popular belief, there is a type of sexuality that is divine. It doesn't have to be animal. And in fact, Krishna is saying that I am a sexual union of husband and wife, male, female, that is not contrary to the divine law. It is respected by the gods because the Buddhas or angels or masters or prophets became what they were because of certain causes and conditions, spiritual laws. Like, if you wish to create a physical child, there is a procedure through the common way, through lust. But there's also a divine law that says if you want to create the soul to be born of the spirit, one can use certain procedures or the, the science of alchemy. So I am sex that is not contrary to spirituality. And when we think of laws, we, t- we tend to think of laws given by society, by governments. And when I mention husband and wife, I don't mean marriage papers. People are not married because of a paper or a ritual. Real marriage occurs between a couple when they sexually unite. And that's all that divinity really cares about. Because when a couple unites, they're sharing all their mind, their energies, their emotions, their forces. 
It's a marriage. It's a type of union. But unfortunately, many of us have engaged in relationships that or entered the sexual act with many partners without knowing about the Dharma, which is you know, our situation. But of course, that can be changed and rectified. This is why we give classes on this type of knowledge. So what I mean by law, dharma, truth, reality, has to do with the causes and conditions that produce our happiness in the soul, our spiritual development, to help us become like Jesus or Buddha or Moses or the prophets. So again, I show Padmasambhava with his consort. He stated very interestingly that lustful people do not enter the path of liberation. Marriage, sexual union, the sexual act can produce one's greatest happiness and one's greatest damnation. Suffering. Look at humanity today as I mentioned. People engaging in sexual behaviors that produce pain. Of course, people being hypnotized by kama and raga, desire and attachment, always go towards those experiences, grasping at pleasant experiences. And don't recognize that that very same act of lust and desire produces pain. Because once lust is fed, sex is culminated with animal pleasure, it can result in disillusionment, pain, suffering, The sexual act itself, tantra, alchemy, is the narrow way mentioned by Jesus in the Gospels. Straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life. And few there be that find it. Of course, people think of this path of liberation as something devoid of a sexual flavor. But literally the narrow way is when husband and wife unite, male, female. This is the symbol of the cross, Vertical phallus, horizontal uterus. They unite so that those energies accumulate and when directed by the couple can crucify our defects. It's a symbol of Jesus going on passion. He lived it literally, physically, but he was showing something symbolic and allegorical and sexual. That energy which can create life, can also destroy impurity. That is the nature of the kundalini. It is the nature of Shiva Shakti amongst the Hindus, the creator and destroyer. Shiva is the power of the Holy Spirit, or is the sexual energy, which in Tantra, that energy can be directed at any defect, any fault that we have that we've understood profoundly from meditation, and to remove it, so that the soul is liberated and the soul is united with divinity. That is the path of liberation, the secret path that Jesus taught that few find. And it's obvious that humanity does not know the path because you look at the state that it's in. Lustful people do not enter that path, meaning they may be married and they may know this teaching and may know about conserving sexual energy and working on the mind. But if they don't actually work on themselves, they don't enter the path from experience. And on our websites, we talk a lot about gnosis, from the Greek, meaning knowledge, to have experience born from 
spiritual practice. We cannot have genuine spiritual knowledge, experience of divinity, if our soul is asleep, if psyche is dormant. But we can awaken the soul by learning to use this energy. And, of course, married couples have much more power to work with, but individual practitioners can learn through pranayama, spiritual exercises, how to work with that energy as an individual until, with work and patience, that person may find their partner according to with divinity, may be helped, may find their marriage. And this was originally the, the meaning of monastic life, which, of course, lost its true purpose. Monks and nuns would practice individually at their monasteries for many years, learning to circulate and work with that energy individually. And then when the time came, they would be brought their partner and they would learn to practice alchemy. Unfortunately, the Catholic Church and many groups didn't like the sexual flavor of this type of teaching because, of course, it scandalizes many people. Unfortunately, this is the stone of Peter, the rock of offense upon which we should build our church And it's not marvelous, it says uh, the Gospels. Many teachings hid in there. Lastly, we'll talk about how that energy can circulate. The Bible calls the uh, circuitry of Tantra those energetic channels that rise from our cossacks to our brain and then to our heart. They call that the two witnesses in the book of Revelation. It's known as Ida and Pingala in Sanskrit amongst the Hindu yogis. These are the two serpents that entwine a staff on the symbol of medicine. Because we heal our soul like the bronze serpent healed the Israelites in the wilderness by working with these two energetic channels in us. These two serpents are two forms of energy. Masculine, feminine. Solar, lunar. Copper, tin. So whether we're male or female, we have those two energy circuits in our spine. But of course, men will tend to polarize more of the masculine energy and women the feminine energy in their physicality, which is why it's important that if one is going to work with this energy in a marriage, you need both polarities to create physical man, physical woman. Together, they can, just like they can create a child, they can create something more. But we also have those circuits in our spine. These are known as Adam, Eve in the Bible. Male, female. Ida, pingala. Solar and lunar. And we can do certain exercises like in books called Kundalini Yoga, The Yellow Book. Even some practices in The Perfect Matrimony looking by Samal Vior to work with mantras and prayer and breath work. If we're single, we can take that energy on our own and circulate it and train ourselves so that we can use that energy to empower our meditation. That's the primary purpose of working with that energy, to empower our soul. But if one is married, of course, it's more energy, more fire, but more difficulty because the difficulty that couples face is that they're trying not to eat the forbidden fruit. In the Bible, Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden fruit in the tree of knowledge. It's a symbol. How they didn't respect the law of divinity of conserving the energies of God in themselves, and they expelled it. 
or better said, they expel themselves from Eden, which is a symbol of the state of bliss and spirituality our humanity once knew before it indulged in desire, which is eating the forbidden fruit, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, of positive and negative, Ida Pingala, the two witnesses. So that forbidden fruit is, of course, the orgasm. Divinity said, you shall not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Do not take that energy and expel it out of yourselves. Because the day that you do, you will surely die, spiritually speaking. This is the foundation of the Judeo-Christian Bible. Of course, the one that tempted them was the serpent. Because that serpent above is Kundalini. But if we're filled with egotism and desire, it's the tale of the... Demons, tale of temptation. We have many practices that can teach you how to work with energy. To really understand how all the different symbols and traditions teach this science takes many years. It's very extensive. Studying the Bible or the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita and many scriptures. I just wanted to introduce some of these elements for you to see that it is very vast. It's a very profound teaching which you can verify not only through reading books by Samael and Vior or other authors, but really examining the original root scriptures of Tantra, of alchemy. It takes a lot of time to learn and understand how this science was taught, and also, more importantly, how do we practice it in ourselves. Do you have any questions? Yes? Good question. Um, for both. Obviously, a single practitioner is going to have energy to a degree. They can learn to direct that energy through pranayama, mantras, prayer, so that they can eliminate certain defects that they have to a very minor extent. When a person is married, they have available to them the fire of a sun more power so when they're sexually united as a couple they can have more force by which to eliminate defects so compare a single person to the light of a candle compare a married couple to the light of a sun you can't compare the the magnitude of that force it's truly tremendous so obviously individuals can eliminate ego defects desires but married couples can eliminate much more. They can do the totality of the work. So eventually, people who are single, if they really want to pursue this type of path, they have to eventually get married. But of course, that's a delicate thing, a long process, and depends on the unique situations of the individual. Yes? Sure. Uh, just to be clear, as I mentioned, there are different forms of Tantra. There is positive Tantra. There's negative Tantra. We call them white and black. 
why Tantra refers to purity in sex, meaning never expelling the sexual energy in any form or way, whether physically, mentally, emotionally, through orgasm or through desire. You have block Tantra, which is exclusively focused on expelling the energies and even taking that energy and directing it into desire, which of course is not what we teach here. It's something different. That's called block Tantra because it is impure. It's the science of demons. People who really feed their lust and desire, direct that energy into anger and pride and fear, laziness, to fortify those elements. So, obviously, in the end, that produces a lot of suffering for the individuals and other people. There's also great tantra, which is sometimes a couple unites periodically. Sometimes they conserve the energy, sometimes they expel it. Gray is in the middle. But eventually, great tantra degenerates into black tantra because, obviously, this desires accumulated from indulging in lust is accumulates, it becomes bigger the Dalai Lama talks a lot about Padmasambhava he wrote a book called the Tibetan Book of the Dead uh, Bardo Foldo it's a lot about consciousness and dreams but it's a, one of the most seminal tantric texts available which you can read about it talks a lot about states of consciousness and dream yoga, dream science which you know you can learn to take the energies of tantra transmutation prayer, pranayama, so that your consciousness can awaken from dreams, which is partially one of the symbols of psyche and eros. She awakens from her sleep, meaning internally, even when being in the dream state, she awakens her consciousness so that she can investigate those regions, those realms called heavens, different dimensions, which is where we gravitate to when our physical body sleeps. We go out in the dream state, usually hypnotized by our own projections of mind, dreams. But we can awaken from dreams by using that energy. So it's a key text that the Dalai Lama introduces in, I believe, one of the most recent publications of that book, uh, Tibetan Book of the Dead. And uh, the works of Padmasambhava especially are, are powerful. Tsongkhapa, too. He teaches more Mahayana Buddhism, but you know, he teaches the foundations by which to understand Tantra, especially. And, of course, the study of Tantra is very deep. I just want to just give you a, a bit of the gamut of what that tradition is like, because people were never introduced to Tantra right off the bat. This is a very different lecture than what has been done traditionally for thousands of years because they would make the student study under a guru or shaykh or teacher or prophet or whatever for 10, 20, 30, 40 years before they taught them, now that you know how to work with your energy as an individual, now I'm going to teach you the science of how to practice in a marriage. So there are tantric texts out there, and I can give you some references too. We'll write them down. Yes. A lot of the ta- tantra that I've studied under the Dalai Lama, sure. a lot of his uh, talks, they speak a lot about, they use visualization a lot right. um, to visualize yourself as an enlightened being and visualize the exterior world as like a mandala or. Sure. Um, but uh, how, like how does Gnosis uh, combine that visualization? 
So you can read The Mystery of the Golden Blossom as one book that we have available, where Salman Ver explains how when a couple is united and after they've meditated profoundly, they can work together and when they're sexually united, they can imagine an event in their day in which a certain defect that they observed in themselves popped up. Imagine that defect. If it's the husband's defect, he explains to his wife, this is what I saw, defect I saw in myself earlier in this day, at this moment, this is what I've comprehended. I notice I saw lust in myself as an example. The partner, the wife, imagines with him. They both develop their imagination and visualize that defect that they want to eliminate together. They pray. They do mantras. And uh, they work to eliminate that defect through concentrating on what we call the Divine Mother. Divine Mother Kundalini is her name. So she can eliminate defects when the couple is working together. Of course, that's a very powerful practice. It just takes a lot of communication and work and support. You know, you can read about that in the Mystery of the Golden Blossom specifically. I mean, the whole book just talks about how to do that. You imagine a defect you want to eliminate. And because the couple is united, they're like God. They can create. Male, female. Adam, Eve. Or in the Hebrew name of God, Jehovah, Yod Chava. Yod is masculine, Adam. Chava is Eve. Because the word for Eve in the Bible is Chava. Yod Chava is the, our divinity. So the couple has to work together, unite their polarities. And they can visualize together what they want to eliminate in the husband. And then, after the husband eliminates that defect, together they eliminate that fault. Because they're sharing that power to create and destroy. They take turns and the wife can present a defect she observed in herself, understood, meditated upon. They work on that defect together. That's the procedure. Of course, it takes a lot of time to learn that. And actually, you, know, you can read about it, but when you are practicing, it's another thing. Single people cannot... Yeah, they can um, visualize whatever defect they've understood in themselves and ask for annihilation through certain mantras. Like uh, Kareem is one mantra. The vowel S. And we've explained this process of meditation in our course, uh, Gnostic Meditation on ChicagoGnosis.org. If you want to know how to practice that type of meditation, you can study uh, the last lecture in that course. It's called Retrospection Meditation. Any final comments or questions? So I invite you to study because I know we talked about a lot of different things, but the main purpose is to present the breadth of this science. It's very deep and extensive. It takes a lot of study and practice and understanding. So if you're interested, you can see some of the books we have available that talk about these things, but also... If you want to read these books and scriptures online, you can go to GnosticTeachings.org, which has everything available electronically too.
about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.